Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host Kenny B. This is uh, you are you are, oh, you are listening to Movie Maniacs, our weekly podcast radio program uh, that delves into the world of motion pictures, television, anything and anything in the world of pop culture, all intertwined. This week on our show. We're going to be talking about uh, our top 10 comfort movies, movies that we find repeatable, that we'd like to watch at least three times in a calendar year. I probably could have did about a top 100, but narrowed it down to a top 10. We are heard on Whoa, Whoa, W-O-W-O out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night at midnight. A lot to talk about in the movie industry as a whole, on the verge of a writer's strike, box office, uh, very, very up and down and very much un predictable i got a chance to see indiana jones in the dial of destiny i'm going to talk about that and review it on this week's program and until we uh start with the main topics i'm going to throw it over to my co-host kenny b and uh, ask what is on your mind kenny b uh, i don't um, first of all i have to apologize to the audience i gave chuck had a little bit of a rough open because i threatened him if we don't get this show started and get, so I can get to the other side of the bay because it is a Friday and traffic will be terrible and I have to go to the other side of the bay because I have to go play golf this afternoon because I haven't played yet this week. So, you know, it's, it's part of retirement. You have to do that. On my mind, I saw the, the uh, Mario Brothers movie. And, did, okay. And in all seriousness, I don't think you could make that movie about any other ethnic group and get away with it. Why is it that we can stereotype and really parody Italian-Americans? You could not have made that movie about any other group. They're, they're plumbers. You know, Mamma Mia, they're eating the meatballs and all that stuff. And, and the thing is, it's, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm only semi-serious because three of my four grandparents are Italian. But I was watching a Bill Maher, uh, one of his old uh, casts of uh, New Rules that he does at the end of every show. And this one was on Hollywood and roles and all that and about the actor from the Danish girl saying it was a mistake for a uh, non-transgender person to play a transgender person. And Bill Maher saying, what the hell is going on in this world? Does that that mean that only the only role a transgender person can play is transgender? And oh, by the way, we have an African-American playing George Washington. So... Can we have Matthew McConaughey play George Washington Carver? Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's, it's really, it just brought it back to me that wokeness in Hollywood is very much, uh, it's, it's myopic. It's, 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 it's only in certain directions in certain ways. Uh, people got upset about non-Jewish actors playing Jewish characters. And Bill Maher showed an article which referred to it as Jew face. And Bill Maher said, yeah, and that's the one thing we've always said. There aren't enough Jewish people in Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So it is interesting that you can make that movie. You know, we always talk about, could you make this movie today? You couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. No, you but, could not. But, we talk about the many times. And yeah, also, you, know, it, you bring up a lot of good points. And, you know, when Tom Hanks talked about a lot of the films that, he, that he's done, and he's made so many great movies, although he said he's only done like five great movies. I think it's a lot more than that. But he talked about his role in Philadelphia. And he said if that movie was done today, he wouldn't have played, he wouldn't have played the role because uh, uh, basically a gay man should play a gay man. And 
I, I don't agree with that on any level. That's why they call it acting. I mean, that, it should that, be fair and equal role uh, opportunity for for any and all. That's uh, that's exactly that's exactly what Bill Maher said. That's why it's called acting. You're trying to be something you aren't. And of course, the answer to Tom Hanks is Sean Penn, Harvey Milk. He killed that role. Sean Penn, last time I checked, is not gay. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, and I and I and I do wonder, uh, you know, who, who's really manifesting the whole woke movement. I mean, obviously, there's there's, there's you know there's a, there's an old saying, uh, the, the truth is not here or there; it's somewhere in in the middle. And I, I do bite into that philosophy, and I think you know an open ear to a lot of different viewpoints is a good, healthy, productive thing. I'm all aboard on that aspect. But there's common logic which has to come into play in certain uh, in, in certain instances. And I, I just think some of this stuff uh, is not, logic is not being applied here. It's just way extreme, overboard. It, it's not, doesn't make much sense. And some of it, uh, to be honest with you, like you said, I, it, it's fairly infuriating. Uh, and it's a, it's a direction that uh, I, I don't want to see the industry or the culture in general go into. Yes, there's issues that should be discussed, no doubt. That's a good thing. But some of it is just a little bit way, way too much, Ken. Yep. And the other thing, uh, it's for the, I've started now like 12 years after everybody else. I've started watching this series, Suits. And I've come to the conclusion... That you know, Meghan Markle in that uh, in that show plays a paralegal who is knows that she's good looking and is really full of herself and arrogant. And then I realized she's not acting. <laughs> I, I by the I way, see, so far I, I, I love it. Like that show. It's a pretty good show. I, I, I love the show. And, you know, yeah. none of it's really none of it is realistic, but it is a great show. And it's on uh, Netflix, correct? Right now, it's on, Net, it's on Netflix yeah. right now. So on fourth, I just want to point out before we get into sort of more of the meat and potatoes of the program, uh, this is the week of July 4th. Uh, do you have any go-to movies that you watch on the 4th of uh, July you I, like I, to talk about? I do, but it is on my list as far as the uh, my top 10 movies, so I'll wait till we get to that because I have one that I watch every year for 4th of July, just like there's another one I watch every year for Christmas. And so I'll, I'll save that for my uh, for my list. Okay, I, I got to tell you, I did watch. Uh, well, I always watch bits and pieces of Jaws. I put it on my big screen TV at my ice cream parlor because the fan base sort of uh, really digs that one. That's one I watched on Fourth of July. Uh, and another one would be Independence Day, which I think is the premier movie to watch on uh, on, on Independence Day. What better movie to watch than Independence Day? My one pet peeve is I bought Independence Day off Amazon Prime. It was on sale digitally for four ninety nine, so I bought it. And the one thing that struck me, and this has only happened a couple times when I, when I purchased movies on Prime to store in my library permanently, is that the print they used that I bought was a little dark. And I think what they did is, I think they, instead of a HD high definition stream, they sort of streamed the DVD copy uh, and some of the night scenes are just way too dark. And even some of the night scenes are a little bit darker than they should have been. Some of it's fine, but uh, that stuff does actually bother me. And I was I was telling Mike a story, and he said he didn't have this experience, but I was trying to watch Field of Dreams, Ken, a couple of weeks ago on Peacock uh, stream. And when I watched it, it was way, way, way too dark 
to, to watch and I, I, I turned it off and that uh, to you lack a lack of a better word it sort of pissed me off that uh, I'm you know paying for peacock and I'm trying to watch field of dreams in their print or streaming uh, stream was just way too dark and I, I'm surprised uh, one that they don't eventually catch it but I don't know who to if, if I was gonna complain or send a, a send feedback I don't even know who to send it to I don't know if you ever uh, delved or, or occur or that it has occurred to you uh, happened to you as I should yeah, say I mean, you, you, uh, you can, a dark stream yeah you can leave your review but that's the one problem with Amazon is you really can never get to anybody to tell them bad things but I, I gotta say it's kind of mean of you to mention Field of Dreams because that of course deals with baseball and uh, you know I, I suffer through watching my team lose 14 to nothing or 14 to one last night they got a meaningless run in the ninth inning and their greatest pitcher this month seems to be an, an utility infielder outfielder isaiah kiner falefa but you know the uh, yankees lost to the birds last night and it was 14 to nothing in the fourth inning so i'm not in much of a baseball mood today there will be no baseball movies on my list Understood, but hey, it's always the, the, the one good thing about baseball is you got a lot more wild cards uh, categories. So the Yankees technically are very much alive for a playoff spot. Let's bounce into some box office uh, totals of interest uh, over the weekend. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny premiered uh, $60 million in its opening frame now respectable but certainly underwhelming considering the fact that the movie cost 295 million dollars to produce hence that is the issue in the industry can i think i dwelled on this a couple weeks ago here's a deal raiders of lost stock in 1980 cost 20 million dollars to produce netted 395 million in some initial run dollar destiny the fifth installment in the, the indiana jones franchise which just came out 2023 295 million to produce 65 million dollar opening weekend or 60 million this film will literally have to do uh 600 million plus worldwide just to break even due to uh marketing costs and you only get half of what what the you know theater takes half you get half as as the studio uh i got a chance to see it it's at 68 percent positive on ron tomatoes there's certainly some strong naysayers on social media uh there's some people who really do like this movie i, I think mike rags sort liked it a lot a lot of people i know went to see it and enjoyed it uh, i thought the movie had some issues no doubt and but i did like it and i'm going to tell you something ken you cannot compare this movie, Dollar Destiny, the fifth installment in the Raiders, in the Raiders franchise, to the first three films, simply because the first three films had a Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, in his prime of his life, 35, 45 years old. They, they, he, I would argue, was one of the best-looking leading men of all time. Picture of health, great physical shape. Those were adventure movies. Most of, really, most of the frames of those three films were nonstop action, with some great set pieces. Uh, a great Harrison Ford, and those movies are iconic. Now, this film, Jay, directed by James Mangold, the first Indiana Jones not to be directed by Spielberg, uh, I think is going for something completely different. And what that's going for is it deals with the character of Indiana Jones as an older man who's now 80. Uh, there's a prologue scene in the movie which opens the first 20 minutes. It it's, goes into the past. It's, it de-ages the character. Some of the de-aging is really good. Some of it is not so great. 
and it's a good scene overall. Having said that, I think they could have actually left that sequence out, and the movie would have been uh, a shorter running time. I don't think you would have missed a lot. They could have basically just got you up to date really quick on what had happened. Now, the movie, at that point, the movie goes into the current period where you see Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford on a couch, gets up. He has no shirt on. So they're basically telling you this is an older Indiana Jones. He looks good, though, by the way. But he is 80. And the movie deals with an older character who is really uh, – people are not that interested in him. He's teaching a class. There's not a lot of students. They're not paying a lot of attention. Uh, he gets sucked back into an adventure. Mads Mikkelsen is the villain. He's actually really good. Uh, uh, Phoebe Walker uh, is is the, the, the female lead. She's fine in this movie, but personally, if I was going to spend two hundred ninety five million dollars on this production, I would have gave Margaret Robbie twenty million dollars uh, and had a to me a more mainstream appealing lead. Now. Th- Overall, I, I think the movie has issues in terms of some of the scenes go on too long. I think that's an issue. But the heart and soul of this movie is the character of Indiana Jones, now played by uh, an aging Harrison Ford. I think he's really good in this movie. The last half hour, Ken takes the character into uh, a really fascinating, uh, really fascinating territory that the other films have not gone on before last five minutes is sort of melancholy and and, and to, to some extent uh I, I found quite moving i give this movie i'm gonna give it a 6.8 out of 10 it's definitely worth seeing it works on a completely different psychological level than the other Indiana Jones films because it is Indiana Jones at the age of 80. Will it be another Indiana Jones movie with Harris Ford? There will not be. So this is his last adventure and the movie basically ends telling you that his adventures are over. Uh, I don't think this is a movie made for a, a teenage or even early 20 crowd. This is a movie that pays tribute to the character, and so I think the fan base who grew up on the 80s films, who are now over 50, I think they're gonna like this movie. Uh, And I think this could have some legs at the box office, who knows, I mean, I thought The Flash would have legs because I thought, word of mouth, it would actually be good, because I've seen that movie three and a half times, I still think it's really good, but that has crashed and burned at the box office. Uh, How this will do long term, not quite sure, but uh, 6.8, out of 10 so uh, a thumbs up for me on indiana jones and the dollar destiny if you're a fan of this franchise go see it yeah i was uh, uh, two points one is i was actually going to make the point that i think uh, the only the only buzz i've seen on my facebook feed was from a, a woman in her early, her early 50s who found it very emotional so yeah i think you're right it's not going to it's not going to draw in the younger crowd because no, it's not it's not that's not what they watch the second thing is you know is it struck me, and I couldn't think of 10 people, so we couldn't do a ten, top 10 of it. But Indiana Jones, yeah, or Harrison Ford, I should say, uh, he's one of those few people, I would say, like uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone, who have, a, who have more than one franchise character that they're known for. Because in the end, it, what Han Solo became those first, became Star Wars. He, he became the biggest character of those three. Uh, he he was the most he was the most complete appealing 
character. Mark Hamill was a sissy and Princess Leia. Uh, well, I mean, obviously Harrison Ford had the most star charisma power, which has been clearly defined by his career. Mark, Mark Hamill, who I like a lot, but really was basically uh, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars and his career beyond that. Uh, other than the animated voice of the Joker, which he got a lot of acclaim for, uh, you know, he didn't ha- he didn't have a lot of tentacles but, but, in the industry. Ha- Harris- Harrison Ford created two two uh, characters out of whole cloth: uh, Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, of course, uh, created Rambo and Rocky. Even more so because you know he created the movies out of whole cloth, and it, there aren't that many people out there that are known for multiple franchise characters like that so it's it is a uh, it's the end of an era because uh we're not going to see uh, it's, it's han solo is gone we're done we're done with his timeline i think in star yes. wars and yes. uh, uh you know the end of indiana jones so it's one of those unusual things but we have been seeing one of those two characters for half a century and i i do think that is fast that is fascinating stuff you bring up because when Stallone came back with Rocky Balboa, which a, a movie that I absolutely adore, and I, I still believe that movie should have been nominated for Best Picture when it came out uh, in 2006. You know, it's a scene, and then Stallone came back as Rocky Balboa in the Creed, Creed One and Two. To understand, uh, to, to, if you love film and, and you understand pop culture, to, to see a character progress in age like we all do. Uh, from you know a young Indiana Jones from Raiders to this Indiana Jones who's now eighty in Dollar Destiny that in itself is pretty pretty fascinating and and Mangold and the scriptwriters they they dwell on that aspect they don't shy from that aspect they're not trying to make you think oh here's an eighty year old Indiana Jones but he's you know moving around like he's you know thirty five still he's not I mean he's lumbering. Uh, he's somewhat at times a little bit can, can confused and they take the character uh, to a point in the last half hour where you, you, you it's really fascinating. I mean, for, I, I, for that last half hour of this film, I think it's worth the price of a mission alone. But the last five minutes, you know, it, it's, it is very reflective of the fact that, you know, we all have a certain highlight in our life or a time in the sun but the one thing about the our existence, Ken, is that you know time keeps moving, uh, and, and and no one uh, can escape that reality of of aging, getting older, and eventually not being uh, in this reality anymore. And I think that is really what they're going for here. An interesting take, no doubt. And and if you think, I just want to get your opinion on this. I mean, Lucas Films, Disney bought uh, the Star Wars property and Indiana Jones for $4 billion, $4 billion. So, I mean, obviously when they're producing an Indiana Jones movie, they they want more than a $60 million opening weekend. Having said that, if you're dealing with a character who's now 80, you know, you're not gonna get the 20 something audience. Uh, they're not gonna really care. So the question is, what do you do with this franchise? Do you just say, hey, this is Harrison Ford's franchise and that's the end of the day? Do you, do you pop it into streaming TV show? Do you recast it in, in, in say, three to five years? Uh, I doubt they spent $4 billion just to be, uh, just for this to be, be, be the end of the franchise. I Somehow this is going to continue, but they have to wait, 
I would say, in my opinion, they should wait three to five years to don't even think about touching it uh, and, until you have some clarity here. Yeah, I'm going to stream the heck out of it until then, you know, the and stream the heck out of all the Star Wars stuff and then take my chance to come up with something new. But I, I really miss, they, they, I saw the scene they, they had deleted uh, when um, Harrison Ford's character starts suffering from dementia. And for, well, first of all, he think, instead of Indiana Jones, he calls himself, no jokes, he calls himself Hoosier Harry. And then yeah. uh, the scene where he's asking, where's Chewbacca? I mean, to me, that's when I started crying. Uh, okay. In terms of box office, I just want to point out a couple more things. Flash has just passed the $100 million mark at the box office. It took three weeks to do it. I, it's almost, I got to tell you, this is one of the more stunning stories that I've seen in decades. The failure of this movie financially. And not that it didn't do well. It, did, it had a disastrous run. I thought it was completely rejected. Uh, domestically and abroad. I don't understand it. I think it's a really good movie. I think it's very entertaining. Uh, Andy Machado, I think, did a good job directing it. Ezra Miller, you know, say what you want about him on screen, you have every right to, but I thought he was very entertaining. It's two Barrys and Michael Keaton. is fantastic. Uh, and I think they did the right thing with that character in this movie. So it is beyond perplexing. Um, but uh, it, it is what it is. I mean, uh, also, Warner Brothers in DC, James Gunn, uh, since we've last been on the air, I did announce casting for uh, James Gunn written and directed Superman Legacy, which will bring back the character of Superman in a big way. Uh, relatively unknown actor David Corsweat will play uh, uh, Clark Kent, Superman. He certainly looks the part, actually looks like a young Henry Cavill, regarded as a good, solid actor. And this actress, Rachel Bronson, who uh, is in the, the fabulous Mrs. Uh, Man Mansell, I watched a couple of interviews she did on late night talk shows just to get a feel of, of who this person is. This is an absolute home run casting, Ken. I think she will be the best Lois Lane ever. Uh, certainly as good as Mar Margaret Kidder still to me is the best. There's been a lot of good ones. She was the best. Had a, Margaret, Kidder had a, Margaret Kidder had a real nice edge in those original Superman movies, especially the first two, which I liked a lot. This actress is going to hit a home run out of the park. So they got the casting right. But I would say this, and I don't know exactly the, the inner structure of how these studios are run, but Warner Brothers clearly has some serious financial issues. So let's just say Warner Brothers needs $300 million to produce Superman Legacy. And they have a ton of debt on their balance sheet coming off two major losses in a row, Shazam, uh, Fury Gods, and now The Flash. Where did they get the $300 million to produce Superman Legacy, Kent? Did they, did they use private investors? Did they go to banks? How, how does this work? I, well, I, I think typically with a movie production, um, and it's, you know, big, because, you know big, I am a big movie producer, uh, but it's most, most movies actually, that's why at the, the opening credits, there's like 74 different credits for you know the companies it's been produced by and it's a Lionsgate film and it's a Joe's film films right. and a because they will go out they will get private investment to the, what happens is the the studio produces the film but the private investors own the large part of that film so it's almost as if it's almost as if it's a franchise if you will that the the studio is a producer and it owns part of it but the studio also brings in investments for this specific film. And if people believe in the film, 
they're going to come and they're going to they're invest in it because they don't care that the Flash laid a uh, laid an egg. They only care about this one because they didn't invest right. in the Flash. It's almost you know the winner of the Kentucky Derby this year was a horse that actually was syndicated and mom and pop owners own the horse and there were like 50 of them in the winner's circle because it was one of these ones for 20 bucks you could own a racehorse and it's sort of the same way with a movie there's even been movies that have been done with crowdfunding yeah i mean studio filmmaking is a little different but i i, I think it really does come down to who where can they get the three million dollars to move the dc warner brothers uh you know uh division Along, but I think in general, I think there's some lessons to be learned uh, over the, the last year. That one, there is a serious superhero burnout. Uh, it's not a dead genre. Clearly, if you make the right ones, people are going to show up. I do think, based on this casting, if you have the right script, and James Gunn, who did the Guardians movies, Guardians of the Galaxy one, two, and three, he's a very talented guy. Uh, he has a good, good uh, feel of the industry and how to do this stuff. Uh, I think that movie has the potential to be a very big hit, but the studio in general has got to do much more counter-programming. The industry as a whole has got to do more counter-programming. I mean, this weekend you got this new comedy, Joyride, which is getting great reviews, mostly in all Asian cast. It's an R-rated, raunchy, uh, edgy comedy. I hope it does well. I mean, that's what the industry needs. And it's another story I just want to bounce off you that I think is fascinating. This movie, uh, Sound of Freedom, uh, with with Jim Caviezel, it's a Lionsgate movie financed by uh, uh, independent money. I think it was just shot a few years ago. It's a it's a, a true life story uh, about a guy who who quit his job in in uh, law enforcement that uh, rescued uh, abducted children overseas, and they this is all grassroots. Didn't have a big financial marketing campaign campaign at all. Marketed to the religious crowd. Uh, first day in theaters was July 4th. Ken, the movie does $14.3 million in day one, beating Indiana Jones and the Dollar Destiny, which did $11 million that day. Now, if this was the 1980s or 90s, that would be an absolutely unheard of feat. We're in 2023. All bets are off. A lot of weird stuff is happening and a lot of it unpredictable. Uh, that is an amazing story. If you think about it, a movie with really no marketing campaign that was grassroots marketed, uh, that's gotten good reviews, by the way, from mainstream critics, starring Jim Caviezel as a following with this crowd. He obviously played Jesus in The Passion of Christ. Um, that's that's a nice success story for this film. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, I mean, it, it shows that today, especially, again, you know, it has a grassroots marketing campaign yet. Well, the entire world these days with social media, you can do stuff with grassroots just as well as you can do stuff with the millions of dollars spent on the Super Bowl. Uh, I, I, I do not disagree. And I'm, you almost have to think, you know, is that $5 million, 30-second ad on the commercial? Uh, whereas I know you got to cut through a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of different areas to get people peaked and interested. But I also think the industry has got to get back into separating the tentpole releases. I mean, uh, to release one after the other, uh, I think you need the smaller movies in between. And then next weekend, uh, you got uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is getting a lot of great reviews. A lot of people say it's, it's, it's cutting edge in terms of uh, new age 
action. Tom Cruise is already on record saying he wants to play Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible movies until he's in his in his eighties. He's now sixty. I guess he has his career tra- tra- trajectory lined out. He's really, you know, he's about making big money, but he delivers, and Tom Cruise movies are very well done. I'm actually looking forward to seeing this new installment in uh, Mission Impossible, Ken. It should be interesting. Yeah, and then also this month in July, you got you got uh, the, the Bobby movie and Oppenheimer, which opened on the same day, uh, third week of July. Much to my surprise, Bobby is now tracking between eighty million, eighty and a hundred million dollar opening weekend. I guess there's a lot of young girls who have an interest in Bobby. Will this movie be good? What's the metaphor? Why was it made? Does it have a real story? I guess that'll all be ter- determined to really keep in the wraps on a lot of advanced, any advanced uh, uh, type of storyline, what this movie will entail other than the trailers that uh, were released. A couple of bits of movie news before we get into our main topic of what our top favorite rewatchable movies would be. Uh, here's another story about an aging icon. 93-year-old Clint Eastwood Ken just started filming uh, what will probably most likely be his last movie. It'll be at Warner Brothers, the studio that he's made movies with his entire life. Um, it's, it's called Juror Number Two. Uh, it stars Nicholas Holt. Clint Eastwood at 93 uh, behind the director's chair once again. Pretty amazing stuff. It'd be really interesting if Eastwood would direct Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise in a movie. <laughs> that, that would be actually pretty funny. Here's another aging icon. Uh, just had a birthday. Mel Brooks turned 97 years young. Yes. 97 Mel Brooks, who appears to have a very sharp mind at the age of uh, nine, 97. Actually, I saw on social media, Kenny, held up a sign uh, and it said, Hello, this is Mel Brooks. Uh, it was, hello, Reddit. This is Mel Brooks. I thought that was actually pretty funny. Still has a very good uh, sense of humor. Well, you know, but I've boycotted him over the years because he's anti-black, anti-Jew, and pro-Hitler. Okay, folks, that is all sarcasm. That's what people say when they watch his yeah. movies you know, and they don't understand. Funny, but here's the funny thing. When you told that joke, initially... People like you could almost feel even myself to a point because we're 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 in such a different culture. It's like, oh my God, is he? You know, <laughs> is, is is he saying something inappropriate? And you know, you didn't. And I, again, I understand we live in a different world. There's different times, but there was a point where you know people could be a little bit more edgier, and you didn't get all this backlash. But we live in a very different uh, time, indeed. Now we'll go to this week. In, uh, in in movie movie history, July third, nineteen eighty five, movie called Back to the Future was released. Uh, Universal Pictures honestly probably had no idea what this movie would do. They knew they had a good product on their hands, but they were probably just hoping to catch lightning in a bottle. It caught lightning in a bottle, became the biggest grossing movie of that year. People talk about repeatability. People went back to the movies to see this movie repeatedly. I would argue a perfect. Uh, a perfect film in every way. Made a star out of Michael J. Fox, well-deserved, but his pairing with Christopher Lloyd, truly, and we talked about this before, truly iconic. Now, July 6, 1980, uh, 1980, no, 1994, Forrest Gump hits uh, theaters. That also became a very big hit. And I, and I, and I sort of, when I read that, I, I sort of reflected, Ken, and I said to myself, 
in an age of superhero movies, in an age of massive popcorn explosion, $300 million productions, people pack movie theaters to see Forrest Gump in 94. What has happened to the culture where this, this, this generation can't sit in a movie theater and pack movie houses for a movie like Forrest Gump. What what what's happened over a few decades? I don't know, but I can tell you because this was part of the Bill Maher uh, uh, thing. Uh, is that they would complain that Tom Hanks was doing it, and he's not a mentally challenged individual. And but I you know, but people don't want yeah you know, people don't want to go to movies like that where you have to like think and listen and it's actually dialogue means something and it's not all action because you know you can go see a superhero movie with the sound off and still get 95 percent of the movie yeah i mean listen i i i and i took we've talked about this ad nauseum but the reality is when this and it's funny because this week in in uh in movie history 1989 uh batman tim burton's batman became the first movie to gross a hundred million dollars, uh, I, I think it took. I think it took. Was it five? I, I, it was in ten days. It was in ten days. It made a hundred million dollars. Its opening weekend, I think, was fifty-five. Right. So, uh, Batman was one of those movies which which ignited a different breed of the way people go to the movies because he was sort of force-fed in to theaters in the opening weekend and first week due to a massive marketing uh, campaign, but. When superhero movies after Iron Man started to really gain traction, and then all these studios that were Marvel and now and Warner Brothers with DC have their own divisions producing just superhero movies, I just find it hard to believe that intelligent people or so-called intelligent people who studied this industry know how to count money, uh, know where the trends are, uh, know what people are going to see down the road put all the eggs in one basket and that's really what's happened here and they put it all in the superhero basket and the big popcorn movie basket and i just think it's a vision that they miscalculated uh, i think they're going to get bit hard with it and and I, and I would implore uh the studio system if they really want to get the industry back on track you have to force feed people back in the movie theaters you got to make the window not shorter longer i say four months between movies and streaming uh, you could use streaming like you did dvd and blu-ray i'm fine with that but the main product should be in a movie theater you got to count a program you got to you got to pr- start producing three times more and minimum maybe four of the product that's currently being produced and get back to what the industry was in the 90s and the 2000s this model as is, is going to be a detriment to theaters, which we know, to some of the studios, which I think will either merge or be in massive financial trouble and limp along for a decade or two, when, whether they go out or they get healthy, that'll be determined by the money that ultimately they can raise. But the way this is being done now, the vision of the industry, the model of the industry, from my experience covering this 30 years, this is not going to fly, Ken. I just really believe that. I, I think you're right. Okay. So so anything else on your mind before we bounce into our top 10 most rewatchable movies that we like? I mean, we could do no. 100, but we've narrowed down to 10. No, we're running late, so I'll keep everything in my mind until next week. 
Okay, you, you, uh, you start with your 10 through 6, okay. and then I'll uh, proceed you. Okay, and we're going to have a big difference this week, I know, in our list. And for me, there'll be a lot of musicals, uh, because musicals were meant to wa- be watched more than once. And uh, for me, because I don't watch many movies three times a year, I'm not like you, Chuck, but my, my standard was if I didn't own it, it's not on my list. So if I couldn't go to my D- uh, DVD collection or to movies I bought on Amazon and find it there. It's not on the list. Number 10, it's not a musical, but it has a great theme song. It's called Storybook Love, the theme song. It's a love story. It's got a great wedding scene. Who could forget? Love, true love. It has a medical crisis, somebody being mostly dead. It has giants, it has humors. Chris Sarandon at his best, Billy Crystal, Carrie Hughes and Robin Wright. And of course, Andre the Giant. It, of course, would be The Princess Bride. It's a movie I can watch with the family over and over again. There are two- why? Tell me. Tell me. I'm not in the. I'm not in that same camp. But why? Why? Why the rewatchability on that film? Uh, I first of all, I love the Billy Crystal uh, scenes in it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Andre the Giant. It's uh, me too. And, it's, and it is your. It's your just your true love story. Boy has girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl again. And it's, to, it's, it's totally, totally silly, which is why I like it. Uh, there's two movies I watch on a holiday. The one that I, that I do for Christmas, I've done Holiday in so many times. This one I watch on the 4th of July. It's William Daniels, Mr. Feeney at his best. Ken Howard, John Cullum as Edward Rutledge. Howard De Silva as the father of our country, Ben Franklin. Because Ben Franklin sired so many illegitimate children, he was the father of our country. And Ron Holgate as Richard Henry Lee. It is 1776. Great musical, great okay. take on history. See, Chuck's really Chuck doesn't know what to say with our musicals. Number eight. <laughs> number eight has Rogers. It has Hammerstein. It's got Rossano Brazzi. It's got Mitzi Gaynor. Ray Ralston. It has war, love, bigotry. It's one of the Rogers and Hammerstein musicals, so it has a message. Great scenery, great music, like Some Enchanted Evening. There's nothing like a dame. I'm going to watch that man right out of my hair. And importantly, they have to be carefully taught, teaching about racism and bigotry. South Pacific, a musical with a message. Okay. My number seven is my favorite opera. All the Andy Granatelli fans out there will remember it also featured the STP song. If you remember the old STP ads. Starred Dorothy Dandridge and the recently deceased Mr. Harry Belafonte. The music of Bizet, the lyrics of Oscar Hammerstein Hammerstein II. It is Carmen adopted and adapted to World War II in the black community. And it is called Carmen Jones. That is my number eight, or number seven. And my number six, it's, it's the wonder of wonders. It's the musical of musicals. It starred Topol and a bunch of other people. But he's over 179 minutes. Topol steals the entire movie. Features If I Were a Rich Man, Sunrise, Sunset, Matchmaker. You know what? We, always, we don't always get it right when we take a, move, a, a stage musical and move it to the screen. This one did. It was indeed my number six, Fiddler on the Roof. Very interesting picks. I respect your list. I went in a completely different direction, which I'm not... Surprise. My number 10 
uh, a childhood favorite that I watch all the time, and I still watch this movie probably three times a year. It's the Omega Man from 1971, the second second entry in the I Am Legend uh, m- m- uh, movies based on the uh, the Richard Matheson novel. Charlton Heston is a star. Anthony Zerb uh, is the uh, villain. Matthias Rajlin Cast is a female lead. Uh, I love this movie. It is a pumped up. B movie, I find it thought provoking. I find Heston fascinating at this stage in the game. Who's, uh, I think he was forty-seven when he made this movie, and like all Heston movies, the guy takes his shirt off in every one, uh, with lessening and lessening results as time went on. But Anthony Zerb as Matthias, I, I found fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's a B movie. It's pumped up, but I love it and I watch it all the time. My number nine, I went with Roadhouse. A pinnacle film in the career of Patrick Swayze. Again, this is really just a pumped-up B movie that I found extremely entertaining. Uh, I like the score. I like the stakes. Good guy versus the villain. It is. It is. It's fun. Uh, I thought Kelly Lynch as a female lead was really good. She went on to have a very serious career, and then was nominated for an Oscar in Drugstore Cowboy with uh, Matt Dillon. Roadhouse, my number nine from 1989. Number eight. I'm going to cheat just a little, Ken because I'm going to lump a couple movies into one category. The, the mobster movies, my number eight. Goodfellas and The Godfather 1 and 2 are absolutely perfect films from beginning to end. And when you sit at home and you change your channels and one of these movies come on, you are immediately hooked. You find something new every single time. You find respect, you find storyline, and you find... Boy, they just don't make movies like that anymore. These are great movies. Perfect. Scorsese, Coppola, they were the masters. So my number eight, I put Goodfellas and Godfather 1 and 2. Number seven, I put Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Philip Kaufman's version with uh, Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams as the two leads. This is a great movie. Unbelievably thought-provoking fascinating well shot i love the score it's a bigger in scope film than the original movie from 56 this one takes place in san francisco uh i find this just incredibly uh uh, involving and also bleak and i watch this movie a lot during a calendar year so that's my number seven and my number six i went with die hard because the minute i watched this initially in the theater in 88 i realized i watched watching a masterpiece I never get tired of this film. Uh, it's a perfect action movie and the pinnacle for all other action movies that follow. From beginning to end, Bruce Willis was born to play John McClane, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. It's just a great movie that is highly entertaining on rewatchability, uh, rewatches. So that is my number six. So that's my 10 through 6. Ken. Yeah, I would have had on my list The Godfather Saga if you could actually buy it which is when they take one and two, splice them together chronologically and put in some deleted scenes that help you understand it more. I I really wish they would, but apparently uh, Coppola is against actually releasing that. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay. So my number five, I don't care whether you do the live version or the animated. It's a a rare triple threat. I've seen the animated version probably a hundred times. So on the live version with Emma Watson and McLean Stevenson, I'm sorry, Dan Stevens, because, of course, he, like McLean Stevenson, <laughs> left for a much bigger career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've seen the yeah. stage version 20 times. It is the best musical of the last 50 years, and I'm an expert on musicals. It might be the number three musical of all time. Great songs, 
dancing cutlery and all that kind of stuff. Okay, there is a gay moment in the movie, but we can get beyond that. It is, in fact, Beauty and the Beast. That is a very good pick. My number five, uh, I went with... It's another B-movie. I, I find watching these B-movies very comforting to me. And Tremors from 1990 with Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward is one of my f- favorite uh, comfort movies. I just find it tremendously uh, entertaining from beginning to end. It's not serious fare, but it, it hooks me from beginning to end. Uh, it's a great pairing, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. The supporting characters are a lot of fun. Uh, it has a really well done uh, last act. I've I've played this on the big screen in the revival showing. Had a time watching it with the crowd, but I remember in this initial release, I liked it. I've always liked it, and I do watch this repeatedly over the course of the year. So number five, Tremors with uh, Kevin Bacon and Fred Wood. So I can I guess we can say with all of those B movies, you have quite a buzz going on this week. Yes. Ah, yeah. Okay, folks. My number. <laughs> My number four, I think it's the number two musical of all time. And I only have one more musical after this, of course, because I'm at okay. number two. But the, and the remake, the remake was pretty good, but the original one, well, it had Natalie Wood. It also had Richard Bamer as her love interest, but nobody really cared who, who he was. Russ Tamblin, Rita Moreno, and George Kiris won Academy Awards. And it had an all-star cast behind it. Arthur Lawrence wrote the book, Jerome Robbins helped direct and also did the choreography. He made ballet gang fights seem real. That's not easy to do. The book was written by Stephen Stonheim, who also helped a little bit with the music. The music was by Leonard Bernstein. Some of the greatest songs ever tonight, Maria, One Hand, One Heart, Officer Krupke, Somewhere, of course, it is West Side Story. Uh, that is a great pick. I, I, that's one of those movies when I was a kid, when it came on television, that was must-see viewing. I, I always remember watching it with my mother, the, the how powerful that ending was. I was like, very reflective. I had trouble sleeping after watching West Side Story. Uh, very powerful. Well, we could pick Ken. I always I yell out, Tony, Tony, she's not dead, but it still ends the same way. Yes. I agree. And then Spielberg's remake was quite good also. Number four for me, uh, Shawshank Redemption from 1994. Uh, Morgan Freeman, Tim Robbins, one of the great character-driven movies of all time. A perfect movie. Uh, It's hard to explain and put on paper the intangibles of why this movie is perfect, but it is perfect. And I got to tell you, during this writer's strike, they should simply take the script to the Shawshank Redemption, throw it on a table and say... How could we do this masterpiece, a perfect film, one that people watch repeatedly over the course of a year when it comes on television? It was a staple on AMC for years. Like, oh, it's it's Thursday night, it's Shawshank Redemption. It's Friday night, it's Shawshank Redemption. Monday night, well, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, It's also TNT and TBS. What a great, perfect film, great casting. Two actors, never been better in Freeman and Tim Robinson. That's saying a lot, but... The script for that movie is perfect. And how can you get a movie to be this good? Frank Darabont, director, fantastic. But the script is where it starts. And that script has got to be solved. Shawshank Redemption, one of the best screenplays of all time. My number four. And an absolutely great film. My number three is the number one musical of all time. It will celebrate its centennial of its Broadway debut in in 2027. 
It's been made into a movie three times, 1929, 1936, 1951. It was also featured in the Jerome Kern biography as Clouds Roll By. It is Kern's masterpiece. It was the first modern musical, and it was brought to the screen. Its uh, lyrics in the original are politically incorrect today. Uh, Paul Robeson singing Old Man River is a classic, but I'm going to go with the 1951 version, which starred Howard Keel, Catherine Grayson, Ava Gardner, and Joey Brown as Captain Andy. And for people who like this, this uh, musical, there is a complete symphonic recording of it out there where they do the entire over four-hour musical because the night it premiered, Kern had run a little bit long. It was over four hours from beginning to end. Talk about needing that uh, intermission. Uh, but And it stars it has Nancy Culp, Miss Jane Hathaway as Parthy. Uh, thankfully, her lines are all spoken and not sung. It is Showboat and it's from the 1926 Edna Ferber novel, the greatest musical of all time, my number three favorite to watch. Okay, my number three, I went with a movie that I've probably seen... I don't know, at least a hundred times. And that would be John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. There's a reason that this movie has resonated in the franchises, some good, some not so good. I mean, the sequels uh, have so much watchability. I guess people want to see a, a, a mass murderer named Michael Myers go on a rampage on Halloween night. It's the same story basically over and over. It's been rebooted in sequel and and, and the only thing you haven't done here is the multiverse, but the original Halloween is one of those movies that everybody watches every Halloween season, meaning October. Uh, I've seen it so many times, I, I, I can't even count, but Carpenter's Halloween 78. And I gotta tell you, when you watch it in a movie theater, because uh, we show this at the Pocono Cinema every Halloween season, it's sort of like watching it for the first time. I mean, that score by Carpenter is iconic. And I'd argue that the score is the reason the movie uh, has resonance and has such watchability over time. But that is my number three, Halloween from 78. You know, last week, Chuck and I had a meeting. I was back in Pennsylvania, and we were talking about movies to show in a, yep. uh, in a revival series for uh, more mature people. And I think... Uh, I hope you're taking down my list here, but a number number two. This is another movie that's been made three times. Originally starred Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, then Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. The 1994 version starred Annette Benig and Warren Beatty. And did they have chemistry? Well, at the time they made this movie, they were newlyweds. They've been married 30 years now. And when, and when you think of it, he was the ultimate Hollywood playboy. And she is, she is probably the most girl next door of any woman he ever dated. But he dated some you know, voluptuous women. And Annette Benning was a little bit different than that. But it's lasted. The chemistry was clear. The closing scenes in that, you could, you could just see it. It was acted so well. And oh, by the way, as Ginny, we had the last theatrical appearance of the greatest actress of all time, Miss Catherine Hepburn. She would have one more appearance in a TV Christmas movie in 94 called One Christmas, but um, Love, uh, Love Affair was, in fact, the last theatrical movie she was in, and she stole the show as normal in, in her scene. So I'm going with Love Affair from 1994, Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. I love the final scene. Interesting, interesting pick. I respect it. My number two, I went with a movie that uh, I just 
if you ask me, you know, give me a big, big movie, a big successful uh, popcorn movie that I, I could pop in and watch any time. It would be Jurassic Park from 93. I just, I don't know. I, I love Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant in that original film and Goldblum was at his quirky best. Uh, Richard Attenborough was iconic uh, in, in that film and Laura Dern was fantastic. I, it, it just has such repeatability. It had a sense of awe and wonder that has maintained through the years. So yeah, I easily watch this three times a year. That's my number two, Ken, Jurassic Park. Now, this is the one movie that I can honestly say I watch a couple times every year, usually in uh, in January or the late hours of December. It's my New Year's Eve go-to, and then probably a few times in the coming weeks after that. I always start the same way by saying, hey, do you want to watch Love Actually tonight? And Jane says she would prefer to get a root canal because she hates Love Actually. And so we watch this movie. I've been watching this movie on New Year's Eve probably for 40 years now. I can remember the first movie I ever had somebody record for me on VHS tape. It, of course, uh, stars Mr. Uh, Bing Crosby, and it is Holiday Inn, the best Christmas music of all time. The Christmas movie that gave us the songs White Christmas and Easter Parade, but just a great story to it. Terrible acting, Fred Astaire, not great, Fred... Uh, Bing Crosby, not great. Great singing, great dancing, and just a feel-good movie. My number one, because I do watch it a few times every year, is, of course, Holiday Inn. Good pick. I know you love that film. And my number of film is the movie I love the most. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because I've talked about it so much on this program. But it is a Poseidon adventure. And i got to tell you, I usually do a revival showing in this movie once a year, uh, either to the public, which we really can't anymore because... Disney owns 20th Century Fox and doesn't license doesn't license their library to theaters to show publicly, but privately I've shown this movie. I showed it in December, and when the movie starts and there's a crowd, I got to be honest, Ken, it's, I I still to this day I get goosebumps. Like it's the only movie where every frame I find enjoyable, fascinating. My connection with the Reverend Scott character played by Gene Hackman is the hero, uh, disillusioned. Uh, doubtful hero. I, I just I can't explain it, but I just I love it. I find the connectability. I find the movie itself just simply fascinating. It was my childhood Star Wars. To this day, I love it. I never get tired of it. I probably watched it over three hundred times, so I certainly watch it at least three times a year. But at the holiday times, the week between Christmas and New Year's, to me, uh, it's just a great experience. So I, I I I hate talking about it all the time, but I had to put it for this category as my. Uh, Number one, the Poseidon Adventure from 1972, Ken. I gotta say, on the on the surface at least, because a lot of my movies, although they seem fluffy and musical and all that, they actually had deep social meaning meanings. But on the surface at least, you had a very thoughtful, very focused, very you know the kind of movies you gotta watch every every uh, frame of. And I had the ones that you sit back and you sing along with. So it's an interesting guy dichotomy this week. Very good. I enjoyed it. To our audience, said, uh, whoa, whoa, thanks for listening to our podcast audience. Always a pleasure. To you, Ken. Uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.
podcast by Federated Media. Mm-hmm.